Those are some courageous people who took the challenge literally and did some of those things, and we're grateful for them. You know, we're going to continue this morning in our neighbortude um, study. My name is Matt Russell. As Doug said, I'm the pastor of Equipping, and we've been talking about what it means to apply the great commandment to love uh, one another, to love others as you love yourself, to actually the people around you, not just metaphorically those who we would consider to be our neighbors because we're in, they're in our Uh, they're in our sphere of influence, but also the people that God has directly put around us in our neighborhood. And there's a couple things as we get started that I wanted to make sure that we kind of made clear. We really are not interested in beginning an eight-week project. Um, Some of you, you know, the very first week we came, we had the assignment to learn names. Do you remember that in the chart? How many of you are still working on that, right? You don't have to raise your hand. Well, okay, good. Um, but I am still working on that, right? And then last week, we are challenged to share the gospel. And so it can feel a little overwhelming. In five weeks, we are supposed to develop a relationship and share the gospel with our neighbors, right? So I want to make sure that we understand that we're trying to help uh, all of us to understand what it means to have the mindset of Christ. And you might very well be at the place to share Christ, to share the gospel with your neighbors. And I want to be the first to say you don't have to have a long-standing relationship to do that. But maybe there's yet to be any relationship at all. And so the real goal here is to develop a mindset, not a project. You see, a project has a beginning date and an end date, right? And once the project is done, we move on to some other series. But really, this is about developing a mindset in the way that we really value and love the people around us. We want to value and love them the way Jesus did. If you went home today and you had the opportunity to share the gospel with a neighbor and they prayed to receive Christ, would you be done loving and valuing them? No, the project is not over. We have this idea oftentimes that there's this ultimate desire, right? And it's a good desire that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ and find the hope and the freedom that we have hopefully been enjoying and living in. But the purpose is not to convert people. We love others not to make converts, but because we are already converted. Does that make sense? We're not starting a project, and the people around us are not our project from our church. Our church is doing a project. We are recognizing that we have been changed by the Spirit of God living in us. And so we want to illustrate that change in the relationships around us and in the way that we value the people around us. So... We're not promoting a two-month project. This is an ongoing mindset that we want to develop. And we really want to develop that mindset that looks like Jesus' mindset, especially regarding the people around us and specifically the people right around us, which I think I'll demonstrate for you at the end of this that those are also very important people for us to be intentional with. So you can turn your Bibles to Philippians 2, We're in verses 12 and 13, and if you didn't bring your scriptures, I have them up here for you. Today, we're going to move towards looking at what does it take, what does it require to develop a Christ-like mindset, to grow in this way. The scripture says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, But now, much more in my absence, 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's our passage this morning. And there's a couple things I want to make sure that we um, talk about before we move on. Number one, this word so then or therefore, the idea is that what is coming is in direct relationship to what has just been said. In Philippians 2, we see the attitude of Christ that we're called to have. And then just before this, uh, as Doug talked about last week, we see the ultimate reality of an eternity where we will either uh, bow willingly before Jesus or we will bow um, under his authority before Jesus. This idea that all creation will, will bow before him. Right? They will declare him Lord. The only question is, will it be on this side of heaven or after death? But here's the point. Jesus retains ultimate importance. Nothing trumps him. And so because of that, Paul goes on and says, therefore, therefore, my beloved. Do you see? So we're getting ready to talk about something that is in direct relationship to the reality that Jesus is ultimate reality and that what he is is where our lives and our hearts, our minds should be focused. Number two, this whole work out your own salvation. I want to make sure from this very beginning that we understand I am not saying work for your salvation. The verb here is very, very specific. It's an outworking of something that is already the case. It's work out your salvation. And so this whole idea of work, which is the main verb here in this passage, is working out your salvation. This whole idea of work in the Christian world has become very difficult because people are so afraid of adding something to the gospel, right? And we don't want to add anything to the gospel, we were justified by grace through faith, right? It's not as a result of our works. But there is throughout the scripture a call to then function to work out that which is already true. And so our signs this week are minute work and caution high voltage. And the idea is that God has already been at work. And so we are men and women at work in our um, development and growth because God is at work. And so we'll talk about that more as we go. I'm going to give you three reasons in this passage that I believe we should be diligently um, pursuing, diligent to become the person that Jesus has made possible by his death and resurrection. All right. Reason number one, you are loved. Now, in this passage, he says, Therefore, or so then, my beloved. Now that term is a term of endearment that is from Paul. Paul is the one who is saying, you are my beloved. That word really is connected to the unconditional love. It's not based upon who they are, but it's based upon a call in his life to love. And they have, um, they're favored. Okay, they're favored by Paul. Now, this is Paul's term of endearment, but where does he get it from? It comes from the Lord. It comes from the work that's already taken place in Paul. And now he is conveying that love 
to his disciples, to the Philippians in this case. I think we are tempted oftentimes to run past an address like this and we think it's just an address, a term of endearment from Paul. Here's what I want to make sure we understand. This is a foundational reality of why we are diligent. God's love for us is the reason that we are diligent to bring about the changes in our life because he loved us. We love because he first loved us. And we see this pattern all through the scriptures. We see this pattern of God's love, his work on our behalf, and therefore what we should do in response. Romans 6, 4, some examples. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life, a work that God did in Jesus that leads to us then being raised from the dead with him to walk in the newness of life. He goes on to say in that same Romans passage to no longer present the members of your body to sin, but present them to righteousness, to be a slave to righteousness. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. We've got this indicative. We've been freed. Therefore, we should follow the command to stand firm in our faith. Colossians 3, 1 through 5. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Over and over, I challenge you to look in the scriptures and as you're reading to find what's called indicatives, statements about what God has done and who he is and who we are because of his work, and imperatives, the commands, the things that we do in response to that. So we're not being called to work for our salvation. We are being called to work out work because we have been saved, because God has demonstrated his love for us. Well, that's all true, but how does God's love actually motivate obedience then? Why would I say that that is the first reason or motivator for obedience, for working out, working diligently? I think it's this. God loves perfectly, unconditionally. He has no needs. When he created humanity, he did not create humanity because he was lonely and needed company. He created humanity out of an overflow of his character and who he is for a relationship with them, to reflect his glory. He does not need your obedience, but he wants it. Remember, in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, we read that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is ultimate authority. So why would God want our worship? Why would God want our obedience, because he is ultimate truth itself. 
To do anything other than what God calls us to would be to live for a lie. Does that make sense? And if you live for a lie, if you live for that which is not true, that runs contrary to the very way that we understand ourselves and desire to live in reality. You see? And God, Jesus, is ultimate reality. And so when we are obeying him, we are obeying him because he loves us and he needs nothing from us. You see, I don't love this way. Rarely do I love this way, sometimes. But oftentimes because of my imperfections, right, my love has conditions upon it. And I struggle to love unconditionally. God never struggles to love unconditionally and he's not trying to get something from you to fill something in him that is missing. He's trying to get something from you because he is truth and reality itself and because you need what he's asking of you. So when I face a very difficult passage that I don't want to do or I'm tempted to go my own way, I can remember that he loves me. And even though this feels like death, a man must deny himself, right, and follow me. The one who loses his life for my sake will find it. Even though it feels like death, it's really life. And it's a function of love. God's laws are not arbitrary. God's laws are from his character of love and his love for me, for us, for his people to reflect his image. Philippians 2 goes on to say, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. The second reason for our obedience is that faith is demonstrated in obedience. I would say that you actually can't have one without the other. Faith is demonstrated by obedience. Jesus himself says in Luke 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I tell you? What's the implication? That if we call him Lord, okay, we call ourselves Christians, little Christ, those who follow uh, the, the example of Jesus Christ, Christian, then that means following, it implies that we will do what we find in the scriptures, so why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? There's another um, example of this in John 6. In John 6, Jesus gives a very difficult teaching that the people really couldn't imagine, and that was, you must eat of my body and drink of my blood. Now, I don't have time to get into that here, but he wasn't encouraging cannibalism. But the people of the time were overwhelmed by this teaching, and they said, how can we handle such a hard teaching? And so then the scripture says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They were done. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed. That's really interesting. We have believed means it took place at a point in time and it's got a continuing effect. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is faith. This is belief that says, where else am I going to go? 
why would I ultimately choose to follow my way when it's contrary to the scripture? Because I've declared that Jesus has the words of life. Do you see? Faith is demonstrated by my obedience. Obey means, literally in this passage, it means to place yourself under what you've heard. It's two words put together that means remain under what you've heard. It's a great picture if you think about it, right? Because we're listening to a sermon right now, or you're listening to Doug preach at another time, you're listening to something um, in your car, you're reading something um, in the scripture, another way that we hear the scriptures by reading it, right? We understand what the scripture is calling us to. Obedience means then placing myself under that and submission to that, that that will have primary purpose or uh, uh, attention in my, in my life. Now, I want to acknowledge that we don't do that perfectly. And because we sin, that doesn't mean that we don't believe. Although, at that moment, we are acting in unbelief. Does that make sense? That's why in Hebrews it says, see that there's no unbelieving heart in you. Right? So we want to function in the belief that we say we have. Dallas Willard says in Renovation of the Heart, knowing the right answers does not mean that we believe them. To believe them, like believing anything else, means that we are set to act as if they, the right answers, are true and that we will do so in appropriate circumstances where they need to be applied. And acting as if the right answers are true means, in turn, that we will intend to obey the example and teaching of Jesus, the anointed. The idea that you can trust Christ and not intend to obey him is an illusion generated by the, pre the prevalence of an unbelieving Christ culture. In fact, you can no more trust Jesus and not intend to obey him than you could trust your doctor and your auto mechanic and not intend to follow their advice. Think about that just for a minute. When your auto mechanic or your doctor tells you something needs to take place and you decide not to do it, why did you make that decision? Because you believed there was a better way, right? Or that was not what was needed at that moment. And the thing is, with an auto mechanic and a doctor, sometimes that may be the right response, right? No offense, but that's why it's so important to find an auto mechanic that you trust, right? Because I don't know how to fix stuff. So I need somebody I can trust that's going to say, hey, you got to do this and you got to do this now. Because I need to be able to trust what they're going to say because I need to do what they say if I want my car to last, right? But when would God ever be wrong or mislead us from his word? You see, we have to deal with the reality that we have said, you are the Messiah. You're the anointed one of God. You have the, whole, you have the uh, words of life. And so there needs to be in each of us, in our discipleship, in our growth, a sense that I intend to obey. I won't perfectly. And when I have not been obedient, 
The scripture tells me that I have an advocate with the Father and that I have opportunity to come to him and to confess and repent. I can walk in the light. Walking in the light is an illustration of obeying. Do you see? So it's not that we do it perfectly, that if I ever sin, I must not be a follower of Jesus. That's not what we're saying. What I am saying is we cannot claim to be followers of Jesus and not follow him. Makes sense, right? But we do it all the time in our culture. We can hold something here, but it doesn't work its way out into our lives. The scripture says to work out your own. Now that's all wrapped up in that one verb. That's the great thing about this language is you get lots of information out of one verb. And it's work out your own. And this is why that's important. Every single one of us has the responsibility to work out our salvation. It's not a group only project. So he says, yeah, when I was with you, you obeyed. But much more now that I am not, you are responsible for your spiritual growth. Do you see? So what's it take to have the mindset of Christ, to develop that mindset, that neighbortude? It requires intention to do what he leads us to do, right? And faith is demonstrated by actions. Salvation can kind of throw us off a little bit. Work out your salvation. Why does he say salvation? Well, salvation comes in three phases. The first is justification. This is when you and I are declared righteous by no work of our own. It's a legal declaration that says, because of Jesus, I'm going to declare you righteous, even though you are guilty. So this is not an, a saying that we're no longer guilty. This is saying we're no longer viewed as guilty. Now Jesus has taken our sin and we have taken on his righteousness. Do you see? Sanctification is that aspect of salvation where the Holy Spirit is working in us to bring about Christ-likeness. And glorification is what happens when we die. As believers, that's the final stage or step in our salvation. It's one of the reasons, even though we grieve when people die and when, if we're dying, we grieve that loss. But it is the next step of glorification, it is the, of, of salvation. Our glorification can only happen when we go to heaven. And the scripture says that we will see him and we will be like him. That should give us incredible hope. So which part is this work out your salvation talking about? It can't be justification because that's by grace through faith alone. And this requires that I die. So it must be sanctification. So apply, it means to apply continual effort. It's in the present tense. Be applying effort in your sanctification. I look for ways to grow. I, look, I intend to obey and I look for the means to grow spiritually. I work out my own salvation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. Listen, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. 
This is a great picture of the work of God and the work alongside of God laboring because it's the grace of God laboring in me. Luke 6, 47 and 48. We read 46 a minute ago. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. You see, working out our salvation requires often that we dig deep. Dig deep into what? Ourselves, our lives. Another way that the scripture says this is put off the old and put on the new. Put off the old man, put on the new. Um, in Second Peter, it talks about um, all that string of, of adding to our knowledge and perseverance and holiness. It goes on to talk about all the diligence we're applying to put into practice our sanctification. When I was, um, I first became youth pastor here, I had never been on a missions trip before. And they, they said, I got hired, and they said, hey, in two months you're taking a missions trip with like 10 kids. Awesome. I was really excited, honestly. I was very excited, and I thought, man, we're going to go share Jesus, and we're really excited. And I got there, and we got there late in the afternoon, so we had our sleep in the church that was hosting us. And the next day we got up ready to go and they took us out to a field and they said, okay, we're gonna clean all these rocks out of the field. Well, this is not mission work. Mission work is telling people about Jesus, right? We did that for three days. Literally picked up rocks. We raised support, we were sent, and we picked up rocks in a field for three days. I was so frustrated, foolishly frustrated. It wasn't until the end of the trip that I realized they asked us to cultivate that field, to pick up rocks and begin breaking it up so they could plant things that would provide for the community around them. And it was valid and important work that needed to be done. Sometimes we get our vision out there on making a huge impact for Jesus. That we leave to him. What we have to do is be mindful of what needs to be cultivated inside of us. And so there are often rocks that need to be removed. Rocks like pride, control. Those need to be removed for us to be able to cultivate a mindset or in our current discussion, a neighbortude. Spiritual growth doesn't just happen and a neighbortude will not just happen. There has to be intention to bring it about. So what are some things we can do? I'm hoping that you could see this list, like a list of 15 things, and it will trigger your mind to grab hold of one of them and that you will do something this week, right? That you will be working towards building relationship with your neighbors. Admit the awkwardness and go learn their names. I've been in my neighborhood for 15 years. I've probably met everybody at least, well, there's two people that moved in now, two houses, but I've met almost everybody, but not everybody, and I've forgotten many of the names of the people I've already met. And it's been awkwardly long since I've introduced myself to the people who just moved in, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's been great intentions, but never have gone down there to introduce myself. What's the rock that I have to remove? Pride. Right? I've got to remove pride and go, 
this is just the reality. I have not been a good neighbor. We need to know each other. Will you tell me your name again? But that requires intention to obey and then actions to follow up. Or maybe you see yourself as an introvert. And this is really for extroverts. Well, you're off the hook then because you don't have to do it. No, of course not, right? It's just harder for you. I, I grant that. For those who are given to more, um, they're shy or more introverted, it's going to be more difficult. But what's the rock you have to remove? Your timidity and fear, because God has not given you a spirit of fear, right? He's given you a sound mind, right? And so my love for Christ would motivate me even when I'm afraid to go knock on the door and I'm going to trust him even though I don't want to do this because I'm an introvert. Now, the truth is maybe you're just not that much fun. That's okay too. But I bet there's somebody on your block that's a lot of fun. And so could you partner with them? Could you develop your neighbor too with another believer? Or it's possible with an unbeliever. If you've got an unbeliever who's great at throwing parties... Jump in and get to know your neighbors, right? So you can, you can say, you know what, let's get together with another uh, person on the block and let's put this together um, as a team. Or what about just simply asking God for opportunities? You know, sometimes we kind of go, oh, well, I could pray about it, like it's not that big a deal. No, we should pray about it. We should ask God for opportunities to get to know our neighbors and to build relationship with them because it's something we believe he wants us to do. Go on a prayer walk. That's something that uh, I heard from somebody. They said, you know, what we started doing is just walking. It's good for us and we pray as we walk. And they've been amazed how many people have come out or seen them walking and have said hello and they've stopped and said hello to them and have gotten to know them. Bake something to share or borrow something you need. Right? Don't be obnoxious and you need to really need it. Like, it's really awkward if you say, can I borrow your lawnmower? And then you've got one in your garage. But um, borrow something that you need before you go buy it. Or, you know, if you borrow a cup of sugar, borrow it on purpose and then go buy a bag of sugar and take it back. Right? But look at those as opportunities to, as Doug had said, to have it be both ways and to illustrate a need. Share from your garden. Or host a be- bring your own meat. I learned this from Matt Collins. You just have people bring their meat and you grill it out on the, on the driveway and cut it up and eat it. It's really simple. Um, you know, you throw a relationship in there, you know, conversation and stuff, and maybe a fire pit, but um, invite the neighborhood kids over to play with their parents. Hey, why don't you come down and play at our house and um, go down and invite their parents to come down and hang out while they play together. What about move to the front yard? Do you enjoy your backyard? Well, good. You probably spent a lot of time working on it. Now move to the front yard because nobody's going to see you in the backyard, but they might see you in the front yard. We've started playing more in our front yard, right? Um, Easter egg hunt. It's coming up on Easter. You could host an Easter egg hunt for your neighborhood, or you could show an outdoor movie, or you could serve them in some way, take in their trash cans. I needed this recently. Well, it's gone. I was like, how am I going to get this done? And so I thought, well, that's a good thing. If I know somebody's going out of town, hey, can I get your trash for you? Ask for advice. I've got a gentleman that lives across the street from me. He's 84, almost 84 years old, does all of his own yard work. He's phenomenal, walks every day. He knows a lot about mechanics, and I know nothing. So I'm always having to ask him, hey, how do I fix this? Will you fix it for me? (laughs) Ask for help with a small or large project or a need. 
Ask how you could pray for them. Yeah, I know that's a little more intense, right? Now we've gotten heavy, right? But this could happen in the context of a growing relationship, right? I mean, you could just walk up and knock on the door and say, hey, I'm taking prayer requests. How can I pray for you? That might be weird, but you, it might work for you. It might work for you. And yeah, you could share the gospel, not as a project, but because that's where you're at. And you're like, God, you've opened up a door. You've opened up an opportunity. Let me ask you a question. How will you know where God is at work if you don't start? You can't possibly, if we hide in our houses, we're not going to know where God is at work. And that really is the third reason. We should be motivated to diligently apply what we're hearing because God is already at work. When we join God in his work, we find that he is right there with us and our faith is built up as we step out in faith. So we're afraid and we step out in faith and suddenly we realize, wow, that wasn't so bad and God really was there. But how are we going to experience God's presence in that moment if we don't step out in the moment, right? So we have to step out in faith to experience his presence in that moment. And also, I acknowledge that at first it feels like a project. I got this chart that I need to fill out if I'm going to be a good Christian, if I'm going to keep going to CFC. Um, you don't have to fill that chart out to keep going to CFC. But it's not about a project, right? And it may, be, it may feel like a duty at first as I step out. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. But as you... Step out more and you find God to be faithful and present at work. Then it changes your desires. You see, he works in your will to do his good pleasure. What is this whole thing about fear and trembling? That's something I feel like we're often confused about. What does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Well, I think the key is an understanding the phrase right after it that says for, which means because, because it's God who is at work. So what that makes me think of is this. God is ultimate authority, ultimate reality. He's working in my life. So I should pay close attention and give him the honor and the respect he deserves as ultimate reality. I should work out my salvation, function in the way he's called me to in fear and trembling. What's the trembling about? Have you ever had a close call in the car? Right? How do you feel afterwards? Aren't you shaking a bit? And after that, you are, I, I am on alert after that. All I can think about is what just happened, and I am on alert. That's the picture that came to mind when I thought of working out my salvation in fear and trembling. I'm not afraid of God's punishment, I'm afraid of missing out. You see? Oh, I almost missed it. That same kind of intensity that we experience when we have a close call, that respect and awe of the power we have behind the wheel, is the same kind of intensity that I think we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The idea is that we are each responsible to put this into practice in our individual lives. God is already at work, and he's already at work in you. He's already at work in you. He promised to be. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. 
So all he tells us is what is true. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you do know him because he abides with you and will be in you. These things I have spoken to you while with while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. One of the reasons we should work out our faith, uh, our, our salvation with fear and trembling is because it's God who is the one working in me. You see, when you feel motivated, you're sitting here and you hear the word of God and you feel motivated to act. It's very possible that that is the Lord functioning to show you what needs to change. But we have to take action on it. We have to stop. I was riding out of my neighborhood, coming to church, coming to work, and I look over and a guy is standing, it was very clear, he was standing by his car, the hood open, holding jumper cables like this. So I didn't know what he wanted, so I kept going. No! Like, you realize, and I, the Lord at that, it was the Lord, I believe, said, go help him, stop, you know? And I tend to get kind of ramped and, and moving in my day and become very task-oriented. And so I pulled off, nothing miraculous happened with that man. Like he didn't ask to know Jesus. <laughs> what makes you so kind? He just hooked his car up to my car and started it and said, thanks. And I said, you're welcome. Have a great day. The, the point I'm trying to make to you is those inner promptings. We don't want to ignore them. They need to be consistent with what Scripture says, right? Inner promptings will never con, uh, be contrary to Scripture, but he is at work. He's prompting us. How many of us have left Sunday's sermon with motivation, and then Monday comes around, and we've or before we know it, Friday has come around and we've kind of forgotten all about it, right? We have to determine, be intentional to take action because he's already at work in us and he's a work around us. Acts 17, 26 through 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Listen, having determined their appointed times, their when, and the boundaries of their habitation, their where that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Do we believe that God has sovereignly placed you where you are? Your when and your where. And do we believe that God in his mercy and in his wisdom has done the same thing for your neighbors? If that's the case, then God has already been at work that they might, that we might grope to find him already at work. So when we do something, we're doing it under the acknowledgement that he is already working in us, he's working around us, and he's working through us. John 14, 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He has promised to be at work through you. And sometimes we have this sense that we don't have that much to offer. 
But there's a story in the Bible that tells us about this not having much to offer, where more than 5,000 people were fed. There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? You see, the point for us is that we're always lacking. No matter how many, how many skills and abilities that you think other people have, we're always lacking. We always need God to take our offering and multiply it for his purposes. And he will do it. He will always do it. He will be, he is at work in you. He is at work around you. And he will be at work through you. We have to step. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was, what changes needed to happen. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides in it, lives in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. We are simply saying that if we're going to develop a neighbortude, we have to be diligent to produce that kind of attitude, that kind of neighbortude in the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Diligence is required. And I think it's motivated by the reality that he loves us, that faith is demonstrated in obedience, and that God is already at work in, around, and through you. You are joining a program already in progress. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this word, and I pray that we will be faithful to do something to function in the gifts and the abilities, to function in your spirit, and specifically in the lives of those around us. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you would grow us as we place ourselves under your word. In Christ's name, amen. If you would like prayer, we would like to pray for you. You can find that out those double doors on the side. There'll be folks over by the conference room right there who would be glad to pray with you. And also, there's a guest reception. If you're new to the chapel or you'd like to meet some folks here at the chapel, there's a guest reception over um, at that gazebo right here. Y'all have a blessed Sunday.